0: Welcome to For The Record Behind-The-Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For The Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall.
1: All right. Welcome, everybody, to Episode 3. We're going to cover PFAS, a very popular topic. I've got here with me as a guest, Kayla Turney. Kayla is a technical manager with all four. She's been very busy over the past few years moving from Pennsylvania. So Kayla's a proud Penn State alumnus to New Hampshire and then back to Pennsylvania again, where she's (laughs) sitting today. All the while, she's worked with large industrial facilities and helped to guide their environmental compliance programs. She's particularly plugged in to the Federal Electronic Reporting Tools under SEDRI and ERT. She's been helping guide companies and successfully navigating through those systems. And also importantly for this episode, she is our technical lead around PFAS. So we're looking forward to the discussion. Kayla, anything else people should be aware of in the way of introduction to you?
0: No, I don't think so. Thanks for having me, Colin.
1: All right. Sounds good. All right. So, Kayla, why don't we start off and have you, as best you can on a complicated topic, just set the stage for us briefly around PFAS and maybe those who have not been following the issue closely and probably start with what it stands for. So, take it away.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll try to be brief. So, PFAS stands for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And They represent a very large group of man-made chemicals. The key thing that defines them from a chemical structure perspective is that they're carbon chains surrounded by fluorine atoms. And if you can kind of think back to your old chemistry classes, the carbon-fluorine bond is super stable, and that's what makes PFAS so appealing for use. There are literally thousands of different variations of PFAS, and these things have been around for decades, some dating back to the 1930s as far as when they started being used in industry. From a usage standpoint, if you're thinking about PFAS, you're thinking of things that are stain-resistant, water-resistant, oil-repellent, nonstick They can serve as fire suppressants, like in the case of aqueous film forming foam or AFFF, which has come up a lot in news headlines lately. So if you're thinking of these properties, a lot of the common items are things like food packaging, um, nonstick cookware, polishes, waxes, paints, any other kind of protective coatings, stain repellents for things like carpet and furniture, and then also things like water repellent outdoor gear. So... They're used in a ton of consumer products, and one of the reasons that they've been making the headlines a lot lately is because some of them are known to be PBTs, meaning they're persistent in the environment, they're bioaccumulative in organisms, and they're toxic at relatively low levels. And when we're talking about relatively low levels here, we're talking about parts per trillion. But one thing to clarify regarding these chemicals before we get too deep into it, Especially on the PBT side, is that the toxicological data and the human health studies are currently only for a small handful of those thousands and thousands of PFAS.
1: So, more science emerging around these compounds and what they actually can do and oh, how yeah. harmful they can be. I think, from the standpoint of activity that's been going on around the country, we don't see a lot of regulatory activity yet, some, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but we have seen policy activity and legal activity. So what is the absolute latest and greatest update around some of those activities, Kaylin? what's been going on?
0: Yeah, so it's uh, it's definitely an interesting arena right now. We've seen things all over the board and even with a lot of variation between states, but from a federal perspective, US EPA has done a few major things. So the first major thing is that EPA established a drinking water lifetime health advisory for PFOA and PFOS, which are two specific PFAS. And this was done back in 2016. A key distinction here is that health advisories are not enforceable and they're not regulatory. But what they do is they provide useful technical information to state agencies and public health officials relating to things like potential health effects and analytical methodologies, possible treatment technologies, things of that nature. And so then, you know, states and public health officials can use that data and run from there with it. The advisory limit that was established for PFOA and PFOS was 70 parts per trillion. So the second major thing that EPA has done is they finalized a significant new use rule or a SNR for PFOS. And a SNR essentially is a type of rule that EPA will issue in order to get advance notice about the new use of a potentially harmful chemical. And this SNR was originally proposed back in 2015. And The intention was to prevent a resurgence of PFOA and PFOA-related chemicals in industry, since for the most part, by that time, these chemicals were already phased out or on their way to being phased out of most industries, but... This rule sat around for a few years and went through a few revisions, but eventually it was finalized this past June. So now any manufacturers, importers, or processors of these PFAS that wish to start using them again have to first notify and get approval from EPA. The third major federal thing that has happened is that 172 specific PFAS were added to the list of chemicals covered by the toxic release inventory or the TRI report. Um, And this was done through the National Defense Authorization Act uh, for fiscal year 2020. So, Those are three big examples, but EPA definitely has their hands full, and they're working on a ton of stuff in the background. They have a PFAS action plan that's published on their website, and this is a document that walks through exactly what their game plan is as far as regulating PFAS, And that includes timelines for when they expect certain tasks to wrap up. So in the background of all of this, they're continuing to work on toxicological assessments, published sampling and analytical methods. And these are things that will eventually lead to enforceable standards and regulations. The way one guy from EPA put it during a presentation I saw back in March was that everything looks like a nail when all you have is a hammer, So right now there's a huge push to just get as much data and as many available sampling methodologies out there because right now it's all very limited and it's just hard for people to figure out exactly what kind of beast they're dealing with at their facility. On the state side of things, it's been a total mixed bag. So some states have just adopted EPA's health advisory limits and really aren't doing much else past that. Some states have issued enforceable drinking water or surface water standards, and in some cases more stringent than the EPA's health advisories. And we've even seen one state actually promulgate an air regulation specific to PFAS. So it's very interesting. On the legal front, we're really just seeing more and more consent decrees popping up around the country. So some are just in regards to water, but some are also dealing with air now as well.
1: So the 70 parts per trillion guideline that came out, that's a drinking water guideline. Mm -hmm. And it goes from a guideline like that into collecting more information. The state's having that to collect more information. Then we start to see some regulatory activity pick up around reporting and things like that, like around TRI. Yep. But holistically, in the end, this is a water issue at its root, and it's a drinking water issue. Because PFAS are used in industrial processes. Some of the longer chain ones have been phased out, but some shorter chain ones are still used. It's used in industrial processes or it's accumulated in the environment. So it ends up in wastewater effluent and things like that. And then it ends up in drinking water systems. And some of the states have started to do sampling around that. But how does this tie back into air? and air emissions. So from a technical perspective, how does air fit into this overall picture?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot to consider technically here when you actually start thinking about sampling and background concentrations and all of that, but to put it in the most simplified terms, basically let's say you have a manufacturing facility and that facility uses PFAS as a raw material, or perhaps they even manufacture PFAS. So obviously, like you said, you know, you could have direct water releases from that facility, and whether that's through spills, or maybe they're sending process water out through their wastewater treatment plant, what have you. But you could also have water releases as a result of your air releases. And the way that works is, let's say during production, you have some losses of airborne PFAS that come out of the stack. And then that travels through the air, and it can travel for several miles. And then during rain events, it's deposited back to the ground. And then through deposition and runoff, that ends back up in the groundwater or the surface water. So it's all related. And this has been proven through sampling and modeling as well.
1: Okay. So then how those air releases that fit into this overall picture, where are we starting to see those factor into maybe some regulatory frameworks that have been put in place?
0: Yeah. So as mentioned earlier, legally, we're mostly just seeing this as part of consent decrees. So Early on, consent decrees were mostly just focused on water. So, you know, there's a facility that's tied to an area's PFAS water contamination, and now that facility is responsible for remediating that contamination, whether that's installing water treatment technologies or, you know, things like that. But now we're seeing air tied into those same consent decrees. So that could be in the form of requiring a facility to evaluate and install an air pollution control device, like a a thermal oxidizer, or requiring them to conduct stack testing or just anything like that. And then as also touched on earlier, there's one state that does have a PFAS air regulation, and it's actually a best available control technology or backed regulation, So what they're doing there is that this state has actually gone out and conducted water sampling. And if the samples indicate an exceedance of a PFAS water limit, which they have established, then they're able to link it back to a particular facility through air dispersion and deposition modeling and say, hey, so there's a water quality standard exceedance over here, and we think it's coming out of your stack. So you need to evaluate and potentially install a control device. But- Overall, I will say that it's still definitely pretty early on in the air side, especially since there's still not an established EPA published stack test method. But the wheels are certainly in motion and the wheels are even turning in some areas.
1: Kayla, what's different about PFOS versus other contaminants when it comes to compliance? And I'm thinking about things like sampling difficulties. How do you quantify it? The science is somewhat new. So Speak to that a little bit and different things folks can do to address that.
0: Yeah, I think there are are a lot of layers to this onion. For starters, there are thousands and thousands of variations of PFAS, and that list is continuing to grow. So we don't even have our hands around just how many we're talking about yet. The other struggle there is that there's still a lot we need to learn from a physical chemical behavior standpoint. So what we know so far is that they don't all act the same. So it's not fair to treat them as a class of chemicals, which is why they're being regulated individually so far. There's also an overall lack of EPA-approved sampling and analytical methodologies, especially in media other than drinking water. And when you don't have approved methods, you end up with procedural differences. And then whenever you have procedural differences, you have poor data comparability and then data that can vary pretty drastically based on which procedure is actually used. Another thing to consider is that we're dealing with such low concentrations with PFAS but very low concentrations are relevant to the data and to the conversation. And as we know, it's usually harder to sample low concentrations than it is to sample high concentrations. There's also just a lot of discussion right now about the effectiveness of emissions control technologies. So up to this point, incineration has been the recommendation, but new data is coming out that suggests that incineration might not actually destroy PFAS, but instead just Break it down into other forms and spread it around. So, obviously, that's not good. And lastly, I mean, this is a very public, very scrutinized thing we're dealing with. And as a consultant, you know, part of our job is to be able to see both sides and be that bridge between the regulated community and the regulators. And that is super true here as well, because on one hand, you know, the regulators are getting a ton of public outcry and push to regulate PFAS, which is understandable since some of them are proven to be dangerous. But on the other hand, how is industry supposed to comply with regulations when the methodology to quantify isn't necessarily available yet? So it's just kind of a tough thing to manage. And it's almost like no matter which way you look at it, the cart is before the horse.
1: And Caitlin, one follow-up I'll make on that, and some of the difficulties around quantification is that we are collaborating with Weston and Environmental Standards because Weston is on the leading edge of emissions test methods around PFAS. Environmental Standards is on the leading edge around analytical methods that could be used to quantify PFAS. And you need good data before you go and plug it into an air deposition model and plug it into permit conditions, even though that's in its infancy, but looking ahead to the future, we'll need to do some of that. So I thought it was important to mention that there are a number of parties and entities out there that are really closely tracking these issues.
0: Yep, good point.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting because as PFAS gains more press, becomes a bigger issue, it becomes a reportable compound under TRI. You just start to see the momentum behind this and trying to put some regulatory framework. I think this is probably one of those things that the election influences somewhat in terms of the pace Mm -hmm. of that process and whether it occurs at a federal level or whether states individually feel like they need to take some action here in the near term. So there's going to be a lot of things that evolve, but going back to a requirement that we know is in place going into next year, that's TRI. So, for TRI reporting, folks have questions about what they should be doing right now, looking ahead. So, what can they do right now to prepare? And maybe there are some things that make PFAS unique relative to other contaminants that factor into that. So, what are some things facilities can do to prepare for that reporting deadline?
0: Yeah. So, Right now, I would say the top thing would be to just take a hard look at your chemical inventory and know which, if any, of the 172 TRI PFAS you have on site. Also, be on the lookout for any updated safety data sheets or notifications from your suppliers because part of the supplier notification requirements are to update their consumers whenever a new TRI chemical is present in their products. So that would be number one. And truthfully, it's not really expected that most people are using the 172 PFOS in their operations with the exception of AFFF, which leads me to my second tip, which is if you have AFFF on site, figure out what kind of PFAS is in it, what the concentration is, and then understand how you're tracking actual usages. So, whether that's usage during fire brigade training or even charging your system, just make sure that you have a usage tracking system in place and get that sorted out. Also, just as a note for TRI, TRI alone doesn't require facilities to conduct sampling. So, If you were required to sample for another purpose, let's say the state requests you to, then you would be obligated to use that data in your TRI report. But you're not required to just go out and sample if the only reason you're doing it is to figure out your PFAS releases
1: for TRI reporting. So the key here is? use data that's available, that's right. readily available and that we already have from suppliers who are obligated to, to provide that information. So that's good. That's helpful feedback. And this is next July, July 2021, just to make that deadline clear. So between now and then doing some of these things is important. Yep, yeah, absolutely. If I'm in general industry and I don't necessarily utilize PFAS directly. I don't manufacture PFAS directly, but it may be present in incoming raw materials because it's present just about everywhere. Aside from calling you and asking you for an update, what are some of the other things, venues that folks can be looking at? What can folks be doing to stay up to date on these issues and what should they stay up to date on?
0: Yeah, so again, I think knowing your inventory and what you have on site is number one. Next, I'd say to know your neighbors. So if down the line you are asked to conduct sampling, you need to know who around you might be contributing to background concentrations. So just be aware of your surroundings. Along the same lines, don't be surprised if the state asks you to conduct sampling, especially with the uptick in consent decrees we're seeing. It's not unlikely that if one of your neighbors is entering into one of these agreements, then the state could ask you for data as well, just so they can get a better sense for, you know, how far spread the issue is. So just don't be surprised if you get a knock on the door asking for testing. And lastly, I just recommend generally staying on top of regulatory updates from your state. So I have a PFAS Google Alert set up, and I'll tell you, I get like at least 10 emails a day with different stories and regulatory movement from across the country. So the tides are always changing. Just be aware of what your state is working on.
1: I appreciate that, Kayla. So I think that, as Kayla mentioned, there's so many things changing around this. There's going to be new information coming out. So I wouldn't be surprised if we have the occasional episode related to PFAS as some of those developments occur. And... Some of those things that you can do to stay on top of those are very important because this is a very charged issue. Kayla herself has been at a PFAS-related public meeting around one of the facilities that a particular state was evaluating, and it was highly attended and uh, highly charged in terms of the public interest around that process. So even if you feel like you may be outside of the fray, this is still a big enough issue, and it's an issue that's getting enough press And now some regulatory and reporting attention that we ought to be staying on top of it. So, Kayla, I appreciate the time. I'm sure we'll talk PFAS or electronic reporting in an upcoming episode. Beyond that, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks, Colin.
0: You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific
1: projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.